Hey, welcome to Bullpen Session. This is Patrick Lillis. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Glad you're all right. Uh, hope everybody is. Hope you're enjoying the beginning of what feels like spring. I know it's early March, but can feel a little change. I think maybe I'm willing that. Maybe I want that because uh, as I shared last episode, you know, wanting to get out into the world and wanting to experience people and starting to do that more, making active plans to meet up and see plays and, you know, do things. And really <laughs> grateful it's able to happen. And there's just a little shifted weather, which makes me feel a little more active and going to the Southeast theater conference next week. Excited for that being in person was not last year. And this year it will be, we'll be doing podcasts there. With some of their guests, that's exciting. I look forward to sharing that with you. And, um, and also just seeing how people are creating. And it's interesting. I'm talking this week with uh, Anthony Mosley, Artistic Director of Collaboration Theater Company in Chicago. And, you know, one of the reasons I reached out to him is I, I love Collaboration. I love Anthony. I love what they've been doing. And I have been aware of them since 2000 and something, nine or so. I think I was out there doing a play of mine at the at their sketchbook program, that, you know, and and this huge community party that they had of, of art and it was at the Steppenwolf Performance Garage and it felt like the work was being elevated in a big event. And then through social media, seeing, and we talk about it, you'll see in 2012, like them starting to change and being like community partners and doing theater engagement all throughout Chicago. And, and it's really cool to see what during the pandemic, they've always, always mean the last 10 years been doing EDI work before EDI was what people were talking about. And they now have figured out ways to work with film and video. And they have a show called Oh Colonizer about our colonizing history. And it's up on the pod and it, uh, up on their website. It's, you know, it looks like it's streaming, but it looks like a film. It looks, it looks like a film of a play. It feels like theater energy. You'll hear Anthony talk about it. It's great. But it was really exciting just to talk to him because I think for a couple of reasons, he's so good and the theater company is so good at engaging the community as not an audience, but as everything, as collaborators, as a, it's like, it's almost like he's, you know, just inviting everyone into the conversation and they do that so well and they do it in different mediums, whatever's required at the time. And I think it's, it's a really good conversation and uh, and good person to talk to at this time, especially as he really talked about things in it about, you know, if we're going to look at how we change and how we're changing the method of how we create, I think he's a very good model for it because he thinks about, you know, dream about what you want to make. And that's the method and process in which you should make it. And, and he really does that. So I'm excited to share the conversation. He's also mentions his wife a couple of times, and I think her name gets mentioned once. So I want to just make sure to say Sandra Delgado is a great actor and creator and partner, wife for Anthony, and but somebody who's fascinating, dynamic at collaboration and in the Chicago art scene. And uh, you'll hear a reference a couple of times and really important. Yeah. And so I'm glad to share the conversation with you. And you know, and you should check out all the work they're doing. We mentioned it a couple of times on their website on collaboraction.org. And, you know, with that, play ball. We have an 80-year-old company member. Her name is Loretta Firekeeper Hawkins. She's amazing. She... Um, her husband was a Paul Barrett at Emmett Till's funeral. Wow. She helped introduce Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, the great poet, uh, Illinois Poet Laureate, to um, the University of Chicago and used to drive her to and from class at University of Chicago to make sure that Gwendolyn Brooks could go teach poetry. She wrote a piece called These Shoes, where she does a, a, a spoken word piece um, as Harriet Tubman connecting the Underground Railroad to the Black Lives Matter movement and dealing with um, all kinds of tension between those two, those two worlds uh, within the Black community. She said when George, George Floyd was murdered and, the, and, and, and broadcast around the world, um, the world caught up to collaboration. You know, we've been, since 2012, we've been really looking to use theater as a tool to dismantle oppression of all forms, starting with gun violence and very quickly you get to racism and then you get to classism and then you get to colonialism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's been my journey as a, as a, as a, a white male artistic director and a 
the theater artist. What, what, um, but what, what but was we the were, shift in 20? I feel like, uh, what, what was the shift in 2012? Where was that? Because you were about, I mean, you're 25 years old right now at the theater company, right? Yeah. And so you're in your 10th year. And, you know, I was, I was participated before then and aware before then, and I did see the switch. And uh, do you know what it did for you in 2012? What happened where you were like, you well, know? What? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, 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 my, you know, this, and this we're, we're uh, with a spotlight towards anybody who's uh, in, in the early parts of their career. I'll go back a little bit. You know, I was a finance major from Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana and uh, business major and uh, focused in finance, as they say, and uh, but found myself uh, putting all my electives into the theater program and taking 300 level Brecht courses <laughs> and uh, going over to St. Mary's, the all girls uh, college right next door to take acting classes. <laughs> So um, I got out of college and I had what I call my first quarter life crisis. And I read too much Deepak Chopra. I decided to pursue my passion, which is uh, storytelling. And I've, I've, I've always been a, a performer um, in that I uh, like to have the attention of large groups of people, large being, a, a, you know, two or more. <laughs> but this, but what I want, I love as well. It's just, uh, you know, I don't have to talk as loud and I like to talk loud. So um, I, I pursued my passion to be a storyteller and an artist and, um, you know, someone that gathers folks in space and time and, um, you know, went through a wonderful acting program, Stephen Ivett Studio. That's really, really, I got my craft and my toolkit and my, and my um, philosophy of making art. And then I, which is that any piece of art is only as good as an artist's willingness and ability to share themselves. As you know, and uh, and and so I went about seeking to to share myself and create spaces where we could share ourselves. And I got cast in Collaboration's third show. The company was originally founded by Kimberly Senior in the basement of Cafe Voltaire. It was a ragtag uh, coffee shop operation. Uh, and um, after two and a half years of becoming kind of a lead producer there, director actor, I became the artistic director, and I changed the whole company. Created the Sketchbook Festival. Um, that you were part of, and that became a rite of passage in Chicago theater and was really great at cultivating community and um, relationships and uh, jump-starting careers. And this was before the internet uh, in the year 2000, uh, before the, the social media. And, um, you know, it was hard to break in if you were a, a youngster back then. The, the people of Chicago theater, the, the kings and queens of the theater that had risen with the great regional theater movement kind of had it all locked down and they were not going anywhere. And most of the jobs were going to their, their friends. And so Sketchbook gave a new platform for people to kind of get work out there and start to do it. It was the real, real social media, you know, like well, it was, too, because when I was there, I mean, first of all, I don't know if it was the first year you were in Steppenwolf's garage performance garage space at the time. But it was like so there was this elevation of a thing just by association of Steppenwolf. Right. But also it was clearly a party, you know. Yeah. I yeah. walked and in, and, you know, you know, there's this word festival that people don't understand they don't make <laughs> you know it's the fast part you know but anyways so so we did all that and then and then um and, and you know my wife and i had a had a daughter in 2007 which was a of course a life-changing uh event and really changed my perspective on everything and um shortly after that clever action got its own space in the Flatiron and wicker park and we had a condo and we had uh, insurance and a child, all these things that we didn't think we could pull off when we were in our early 20s uh, as theater artists in Chicago. And um, there was a lot of this. There was a lot of there was a spike in violence in Chicago around that time. Gun violence. Homicides went over 500 for the first time in a year in 20 years. Now, right now they're at 800. So we're in a post pandemic um, you know, reality. But. Back then, um, there was just a lot happening. 
a lot of gun violence. And, and I, as a white man, I started, I was, I was having my second quarter life crisis and I was saying, what now? There has to be something more than just doing the, you know, a, a, a really postmodern play. And I look back at all the shows that I really dug into um, often were about, uh, you know, unearned voices and inequity and kind of our diseases as, as Americans. And my dad's a Vietnam veteran. I consider myself a secondary PTSD survivor. Um, And I started just tuning into the pain and loss in Chicago and then really connecting my complicity with all of that as a privileged white man and that I really wasn't doing enough. Just holding doors and being friendly and smiling at people on the street is not really the same as... Yeah, you got to be, you know, part of the solution, right? So we we made a piece called Crime Scene, a Chicago anthology. It was a docudrama about the root cause of violence. I had a 30-person think tank for six months, trained each other up on all the stuff, and then used that to roll into a devising process. And that's when collaboration began, you know, authoring shows through unique um, collaborative process that is very inquiry-based and really was reverse-engineered by the kind of change we were trying to create in the world. So our name finally made sense. More, more than just party theater, now we were actually working together to make things happen and that action was in a, the school of activism. And I remember reading about it and seeing it because there was social media at that point. And, uh, and I, had a relation, I have a relationship with Dina Taubman and somebody I collaborated with. We had a show on Columbine and gun control and that we worked on for a while. So I remember when you were doing this project, I was really interested, but I was, what I also was noticing was when you said the think tank idea is it seemed like that was the moment where like you went, you became like this partner with Chicago, you know, you became, you went from, from theater to everybody come in to like, we're going out. And is yeah, that- you know, that's an interesting observation. Chicago has one of the most richest clusters of theater companies and artists in, in, in the country, maybe the world, um, especially uh, nonprofit, creative-centric work as opposed to commercial work, right? We know that New York has Broadway, is, is, is Disney World on ice. But Chicago had, you know, at the time, 250 to 300 companies, <laughs> plus another hundred that popped up every year and then another hundred that closed every year. Um, and so yeah. when you look at it, it's like akin to Napa Valley and wine and, and Boston and biotech. And, and when you, when you look at the map of where all the theaters are, you know, 98% of them are in the area where the median income is more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. And that is by design. It's because Chicago um, pilot, invented, piloted, and, and modeled um, redlining, which is the, you know, uh, basically drawing lines on a map and saying, if, if you're in those neighborhoods, you cannot get a mortgage. Uh, if, if, and so, um, and a bunch of other things that happened. So that was by design. And the reason our theater community is so great is because it's been strategically placed in those neighborhoods. And that's also where all the restaurants are. That's also where all the pharmacies are. That's also where all the trees are. That's also, well, um, at the same time, we theater's dying. You know, the subscriber base is dying off. The, um, the, the medium has to stay fluid enough to, to really serve the moment. And in many ways in Chicago theater, I felt like collaboration and many of our peers were not really serving the audience or the moment. And, and that, that really was the way to do that best with what I just talked about with this gun violence and inequity and poverty um, and what is really a, a genocide in, in, in America for 400 years and in Chicago um, was to produce work of voices that had been left out of the of the map. Can I ask how you were, I love that actually on your website, you, you show where the theaters are and where you're performing or you're presenting the work and it is outside of that box. And I thought, I thought it was a really good thing to 
not to highlight just because like, let me show you what collaboration is doing, but let me show you what's happening. You know, and I thought that was, it was enlightening for me to see it. And the other, but I'm, I'm curious, not but, but I'm curious about um, how did you start extending your hand and building relationships with the people outside of that, you know, the, the festive theater crowd. Yeah, I mean, so we did Crime Scene in Chicago Anthology. It's quite an amazing accomplishment. In, in 2013, it went up. And it was a docudrama about the cause of violence in Chicago. Over 250 sources um, stitched together. Um, I led the process with uh, 12 uh, co-divisors. And we had a town hall conversation after every show. The town hall conversation became the thing. And the show became the catalyst for the conversation. And the PR and marketing got people to the show so that they could have the conversation. So that's how it started. We started making uh, uh, relationships after at the show and after the show. And then I went to the, the park district was starting something called Nights in the Park, Nights Out in the Park. I had been already networking inside the park district, um, thinking like, hey, the parks could be a good asset for us to get out of Wicker Park. Um, I knew we had to wake up our community first, but I knew we, we, we had to, we had to get out of, of, of our neighborhood, um, in the very gentrified hipsterville of Wicker Park. And we pitched the park district right as they were conceiving this program. And we became one of their anchor, um, partners in touring, um, the show to the parks. And we did it for four years. We wrote a new show every year. We had to change the focus of the shows to be more about healing energy and showing the, the, the hurt people hurt people. Sometimes hurt people heal people. So we, we went, we started showing, telling the stories of hurt people that healed people. Um, and we did uh, free meals and dance battle tournaments in a geodesic dome and workshops and a town hall conversation at the end of every day. So. That and then we toured Englewood, Austin, Hermosa, Loyola, Brownsville, all over the city. 125 shows for over 25,000 people. Along the way, meeting people, booking them as as opening acts, getting them the battle dance in the dome, feeding them. And you know, I mean, it, it, there's if there's one thing I'm good at, you know, it's talking to people. Yeah, well, also talking to people and getting them getting them excited to to participate because it's not just from my outside eye, it's not just an intellectual exercise. You know, like you said, getting an opening act and showing up. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's just really, and it's just about connecting with people, you know, listening, with, listen, and that, and, and that, and that, you know, there's a lot of people like, how do you do it? You know, you know, I, in the beginning, I had people say, you know, how do you do it? You go into a neighborhood, it's all black neighborhood. You walk into the park district building, it's all black people. And you go in there and, you know, next thing you know, you're partnering with them. And I was just like, I mean, why is it so hard to figure out if you treat people like family, you'll become family with them? Like yeah. Why, it's, you know, it's just, it, it, and I, I realize as a white man, I've had to overcome and melt a lot of my own uh, white fragility and white guilt um, and all the programming that I've done to myself and the culture is, that I was born into has done to me. But at the end of the day, um, the hierarchy of human beings based on the amount of melanin in their skin is a, is a fraud. It's a, it's a lie designed to, um, you know, keep us separated. And, and, and it's really not even that different than what's happening in, in the Ukraine right now. You know, it's yeah. all. And that goes back to colonialism. I take you. I could take your land. I could take your voice. I could take your future. I'm going to ask about old colonizer in a second. I, I want to get a, I'm interested in the institutional thing of when you said, oh, we feed people and because you're doing this incredible work and you've got, you know, you're going in, like you said, you're inviting people, your family's becoming family. It's a very organizational development question. Funding, getting the, getting the support for people to make sure that there's food at these events. You know, all of a sudden you're, you, you have to kick into a whole, a whole other level of financial investment to be able to provide when you're going outside into this new environment, to, right? And, and did something change? Did you, did you discover that? Did it, how did it happen? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, 
and 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 am I right about it? Because it may just be giant volunteerism and it builds, but it seems like there's real stability in the organization and people are willing to support you doing new programming, larger community outreach. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just, it's one step at a time, you know, in the beginning um, for food, for example, it was like, you know, I, I'm a hell of, I can, I can, I can get the grills going. All I need is three other people and two grills and we can do, you know, and I, I didn't want to do hamburgers and hot dogs. I was like, that's all everyone does in the neighborhoods. I want to do like steak tacos. I want to do like barbecue chicken. And, you know, it just get people to, you know, do it. And then eventually I got Connie's Pizza to donate. And then I jumped over to Malnati's and, and, and they've become major partners with us. And uh, here's the bigger thing, though. Yeah. Us theater people, we're so creative inside these kind of lines that have been drawn by previous uh, generations, you know. And the and one of those things is the press release. One of those things is the four week run with five shows a week, or you know what? One four week rehearsal process, uh, Mondays off, all this right because it's easy because you don't want to have to do something the first time. That's really hard, you know. It, but if other people can give you a budget, I mean, you go to some, probably one of those books behind you is like theater management for theater. And there's a budget that was written for like an O'Neill world premiere. And like, people are like, Oh, do we have enough hospitality? Like you gotta just, you, 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 you the budget, you have to dream the thing you want to make. And for clever action, it's actually dream the action you want to make in the world happen. And then go, okay, how do we make that happen? And um, and if it means that we gotta feed everybody at every show. So, I mean, for, for the, what we did, we had a DJ outside in the park. We had a geodesic dome. We had music cranking. We had me on a mic and I'm getting people to battle dance inside of a geodesic dome. Now, everybody in the park's like, what's going on over there? They come around, they see grandma battle dancing like a five-year-old kid from the neighborhood they're like that's amazing now there's 200 people there and all of a sudden they go whoa the grills are fired up you mean there's food and then they all get food and then they eat and then we march them right into the theater and they sit down and and then they go wow that was my first time i ever thought i never saw theater before that i always thought theater was boring i didn't know you could have a dance party you could eat you could cry and you could hug and then you could leave a changed person and so it's just really about not not being you know not it's hard you know sometimes we just like the assumptions but the assumptions were written for a different time and for a different I, people i loved every that all of that and i especially love that goes i don't mean to carry up that goes for a rehearsal process that goes for how you write the show you know how i write shows I get a bunch of people in the room. We share a Google Doc. I have an outline, maybe, or I write the outline, and then I go, "Oh my God, hold on!" When I wrote my, when I did this show, this is not a cure for cancer, which was about my dad and and cancer is a meaning of life comedy, right? I had it was I, I wrote about my dad's cancer and and the whole thing, and I had these scenes between me and my dad in the hospital, right? He's on morphine. I snuck in a flask of whiskey and we had the best conversations of our whole life in the worst place in the world, you know, at uh, 1030 at night. And I, I have working on the show. I had a co-writer, co-director, and I was the lead playing myself, reliving my dad's fight with cancer and his death and our, 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 what he taught me. And I had two, I had three placeholders for the scenes with dad in the hospital, right? Me and him. And we're working on the script and I, you know, I'm like, okay, I know what's going to happen. We're going to, I could describe it, but I didn't do it. One day I said, it's time to do it. I walked into the studio. I turned on my voice memo and I said, Hey dad. Hey aunt. How you doing? You, you look less yellow. Yeah. My Billy Rubin's down. <sighs> nice. What are you watching? Oh, it's a nature show about a lion and a the tiger. Oh, you know, and I and we and I, I just recorded the whole scene, one take. I did that three times, and then I <laughs> back then we had interns, and one of my interns uh, transcribed it for us. Uh, but now that we uh, uh, don't do any unpaid folks, you know, I might have to use technology. But so my point is, is that is that is that 
all everything needs to be examined and uh, tested. I, I actually I agree, and I think uh, it's one of the things about the pandemic, the pause or whatever, where we re-examined everything. I thought, right? Can we re-examine the fact that we're making art and not all art? is a four week rehearsal with Mondays off. And, you know, not you, you're, you're not, you're not doing the third show of the season slot, you know, and, and, uh, and I know that you're not doing that. Um, I am going to shift a little bit with the pandemic and, and the video and is, you know, it's funny, you've always had it. It's never been a model if we're just doing a play. Right. But you shifted seemed like not in a small scale way to new medium. And, and I'm going to, I may not have seen this, but were you doing that before the pandemic? What you, anything like that? Because what you did with old colonizer, which people should check out the, the, the video of the play that could be, could eventually be a series, but it's full on, filming of a play utilizing film but also i feel like i'm in a theater yeah uh yeah people i mean that's like the biggest compliment when people see our films and videos they're like it, it's still like a theater it's i can feel the theaterness the theater hands on it but yet it doesn't seem to be compromised as a film like many plays on video are and um and there's a lot of great um, film directors and you could see that in their work, like Sam Mendes, for example. Yeah. Right. But um, I mean, I'm a SAG actor. I was making films uh, 20 years ago. I was the artistic director of collaboration and I was producing my own films and it was just way too much. And my amazing wife at one point was like, you got to pick one because I cannot handle this. Like, you know, it was too much. And I said, you know, I, and I, that, that I, I picked the I picked theater, I think, because of the live moment and the people, you know, um, and but so I've always had that approach. We've always used a lot of video in our work. We always done a lot of video mapping. Um, we, we've done a lot of events. We do a lot of live feed mapping. I mean, so we've always been very progressive with using our tools and video and phones and technology as like, you know, an extension of ourselves. Right. Um, and the wizardry of now. And so um, when the pandemic happened and we taken away from us was the ability to gather, the energy just went right there, you know? And as a social justice theater company, we felt we've been preparing for a pandemic, you know, for, for 10 years, for 25 years, really. Like we had been preparing ourselves to be there when, when the lights went off, when the theaters were locked. And we were somehow um, able to make mistakes and just keep on moving forward, you know, and see the work get better over time and, and build an audience and, um, and send out a signal to our community and our city that we were, we were here. And, um, and then people started going, you know, collaboration has been talking about this systemic racism for a while. And, you know, I thought institutional racism was racism at universities, but now I understand, you know, uh, you know, the, the, our audience and our, ourselves have all become more equipped to have like the real conversations about the American disease, um, of colonialism and classism and how that shows up and all uh, many other isms. And of course, uh, patriarchy and ableism and ageism. Um, and, but it's, you know, this is the human, this is the human um, issue. And that's why I said Ukraine and Russia, right? It's still like, we are, civilization is not yet cooked. We are, we are, medium rare at best you know and uh sometimes the 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 yellow uncooked oak spills out all, all over the place yes yeah we're me we are constantly evolving i hope i hope we're evolving in the right direction um with the current situation uh, and then there's and then global warming you know i mean it's it's 
And I always like to think about, you know, the end of my life when, when uh, I'm talking to a young person, hopefully it'll be a grandchild or something like that, but a universal grandchild, you know, and they say, uh, Uncle Tony or Papa Tony, you know, what were you guys thinking when you were taking all that dirty stuff from the from the earth that was made from dead things that took energy from plant from from the sun and why didn't you just use the sun energy <laughs> you know or what were you thinking when all those people were killing each other in chicago and dying of of um uh lack That's of hope the, that and that envy is the motivator uh how did let me ask about the the but the show of colonizer right so it's a video it's a it's streamed right? It seemed like such an, uh, it, it was so well done and it was actually in perfect conversation with everything that you've been talking about and that you've done as the company. Did, did your audience shift? Did they go with you to that? Did you, you know, because I, I'm, I'm curious about the pandemic on the shift of medium because, you know, our audience went and, you know, they stayed at home and they were watching Netflix and they got out of the habit of going to the theater physically. And I'm hoping that that is, I'm hoping that muscle keeps getting stronger and stronger as the things get better and more accessible. Um, but I'm curious, did they, did, did you get the traction of that? Did the dialogue happen? Did you, cause I, I watched the, I think I watched the, that post-show discussion was part of the presentation every time you watched it, right? The well, I mean, kind of, yeah. We also, you know, we 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 screened it as a as a part of our Peace Book Festival live in front of an audience. So we took a bunch of stuff. We also made a documentary series called Encounter Englewood about amazing change makers in in Englewood, five part series and. And that just got into a, um, a international documentary film festival. So here's the thing. We look at the concept of an audience much differently than most people do. Most theater companies go, okay, this is our audience. Here they are. You know, we get, you know, some new people and some people drop off, but this is our audience and do they come? Whereas we are really, uh, you know, I, I refer to it as audience design. You know, we're we're de we're designing an audience as we make the show, because those are the people we're trying to activate. And so, by we we tend to stay a little bit ahead of our audience. Um, now, our hardcore people that have seen like ninety percent of our stuff, they'll follow us wherever they go. Um, but you know, my wife has done an amazing job at this. You know, she's able to actually speak into the thing the audience wants and needs to hear and then you feel that and and Lavana Madrid is is uh her her amazing mega hit play musical that recreated a Latin jazz club in Chicago in the 60s that was pretty much nobody knew about it it was like the Copacabana club of Chicago for the Latin community but nobody heard about it you know because it wasn't in the in the history books, it wasn't in white newspapers. And so you had to talk to somebody who went there to find out about it. Well, she talked to a lot of people, created the show, told six real life stories of people that visited the club while she backed a five piece salsa cumbia band. And the thing was a music dancing storytelling bonanza had four sold out runs and the audience would just was just coming. They would just come and then they would bring their parents and then they would bring their kids and their sisters and then their sisters would bring their kid. It, the audience just would come. And it was like, um, and she's got a couple other projects she's done that with. So, you know, we don't really worry about the audience of the past so much, you know, we want to invite everybody, but like this show we just did, right. The Emmett Till, the trial and Delta, the murder of Emmett Till, we transcribed the original trial transcripts that had been hidden for 50 years and, for some reason, haven't really been theatrically or publicly explored in any way. Um, and this is, you know, basically the trial transcripts show the systemic racism and inequity in the legal system that they used to get those guys off and then hit it so that it wouldn't be taught publicly in every law school for the next 50 years. Well, probably 75% of the audience had never seen a collaboration show before. 
Um, we just did it. it had two hugely successful uh, sold out nights at the DuSable Museum. And it was a lot of new people. Yeah. And that's great, right? Because now they'll fold in with us. And, and so it's, it's, um, it's now for old colonizers. Um, I want to go back you know, to the Emma, I want to go to the Emma Till piece when, when, yeah, because you did it and, you, and, it, and it, it looked great, you know, and it, the transcript is obviously impactful. And I love the fact that you read it out, you know, you got those words out loud and you had that experience as opposed to people just reading the transcript, you know, which won't have the impact. Yeah. Um, is there, is there a plan for it to be continued? I mean, cause I know it was two nights and it seemed great, but it also seemed like that's a play, an event, you know, like the oh, exonerated yeah. oh, yeah. years ago about the people who death row, who should get out of prison. You know, it felt like, Oh, this is going to go everywhere. People should be hearing this. Yeah. And they will. And they will. And, you know, we had 29 actors. I, I, I was trying to figure out how to not cast 12 white male jury, including, you know, audience members and, you know, the first 12 white men have to sit there. I mean, but I ended up casting this. The story of this project is a great example of all the things I've been talking about. Right. So. Marion Brooks of NBC five Chicago investigative journalist, big, um, uh, very interested and in, has created work about the Emmett Till case, gets her hands on the, on the transcript. I don't know how she got it, but if you Google it, it's available online, but not many people know that. So she, she says, uh, ask her colleague, Leanne Trotter, who's an arts and cultures, uh, person for NBC Chicago, who, what theater company should I talk to, to come in and do a reading of this so I can do an audio recording of their voices. And she goes, collaboration. So we get hooked up and she says, hey, can you just come in with some actors and read this out loud? They'll have to have good accents and uh, we can't pay you, but but it's a good PR opportunity for you. And we pay, we're we now paying everybody $18 an hour, at least for everything. And I, you know, really quickly figure you can't do this with less than 12 actors because you got the lawyers and the judges and the, all the critical witnesses. And then you look at the script and you're like, the transcript, you're like, this is 354 pages. We can't come in and read this. This will be, it's not theatrical. You need to, you know, so, and, and my team was kind of like, ah, this is crazy that they want us to come in and we're going to pay for everybody. And then what, we get a PR opportunity and, but it's a lot of work. And I was like, yeah, it is a lot of work, but you know what, this, there's a big, there's a big asset here. That's way bigger than this audio recording that they're talking about. And we're going to just jump ahead of them and pull them along in, in, towards turning this thing into a, to a real thing. So we commissioned uh, two company members, Gary Mills and Willie Round to adapt it, worked closely with them in that process. They jumped into it 30 days later, they had a 90 day, 90 page transcript, came back to um, NBC and said, hey, you know, we're producing a play um, if you want, you can use some of the scenes from the play for your documentary. And um, why don't we shoot the whole thing while we're in the studio? Not just the, the thing. We got it together. Let's just do the whole thing, shoot with five cameras, and then go from there. Um, and so through um, that's what we did. We and scrambled and got sponsors. We booked two shows at the DuSable so we could share with the public and get some ticket revenue and some press. And then Wednesday before shooting it, um, I mean, do, performing it at, at DuSable with only uh, really two four-hour rehearsals, one on Zoom, a reading, one in person, a blocking session, notes, and then one-on-one -on -one with eight of the actors. I, we, I did eight scenes on Zoom, 25 minutes apiece, different lawyer testimonies. That was the whole process. And we went into NBC and we shot the whole thing in a nine hour day. And they, did so, they shoot, did they shoot it for you? They shot it for us and they paid for the cameras and the team. And we were in the old Jerry Springer and Steve Harvey studio. And um, they, they will be using excerpts of that for Marion Brooks's uh, documentary about the trial. And there will be a full performance video available on the Peacock Roku and um, Hulu. I mean, uh, sorry, Amazon. Nice. So you'll be able to watch it um, probably in three or four months. You'll be able to see the whole thing with a multi-cam shoot. In the meantime, we are raising money. 
um, to bring, you know, to do a full production of the piece, um, hopefully in February 23, but that might be a little soon. But yeah, we want it to be an ongoing um, asset for um, Chicagoans and, and students from everywhere to be able to understand what happened at that, at that trial so that it never happens again because it's still going on. Our legal system is still not uh, equitable. And if we don't understand the mistakes of our past, we will just keep on repeating them. And that being said, we are at a moment in time where we are finally seeing some police officers face the consequences right. of killing people um, who maybe should just be hugged or handcuffed. Right. There's a, yeah, but there, there is a change, which is great. There's accountability. Just, yeah, accountability a little bit. It's happening. A little bit. Not, yeah, I'm not going to say that it's changed, but it's changing. And, and I do think the play you're talking about is the Emmett Till transcript sounds, it does. It sounds like, you know, I'm glad you're thinking of putting it up or trying to put it up next oh, year. Yeah. It, it feels like a, feels perfectly in conversation with what's happening in the world today. Yeah. You know, and it's funny because I've become quite a multimedia progressive kind of theater maker. And this kind of goes back to just, it's a historical reenactment is what it is. So it's, it's just going back to like simple truth in a courtroom. And that was one of the reasons we were able to pull this thing off so quickly because everybody understands the dynamics. We've watched enough TV and some of us have ever actually been in a courtroom. We understand the basic dynamics. Like people are, how are you going to block this so quickly? I'm like, everybody, it's already blocked. You know, you know, go to the witness there. <laughs> That's right. You're the judge. You sit there. <laughs> Left hand on the Bible. I mean, you know, it's just, so it was really cool um, to work that way. And then of course, then you get in there and, and, and finesse it. But at the same time, the actors had a lot of, the lawyers had a lot of freedom with where they went while they were doing stuff. And, you know, we put a, you know, we'd, Put something set something here and there but with such a, a process i i had to just kind of let go and let them just totally be you know yeah and here's the thing i directed to kill a mockingbird 20 years ago that was like my first big show that was a you know a large cast sold out run students and it and and, and you know this trial the state of mississippi versus milam and bryant was the source for To Kill a Mockingbird. So in a, in a way, um, you know, it's I've, I've come full circle and, um, and and it all makes sense to me when I'm 85. Right now, it's, 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 it feels right. Yeah. Um, this is such a big, this is another admin question. I love that you went to the equity pay. You know, everybody, you know, no free labor, no interns, everybody gets $18 an hour. You know, I want to ask, like, is that is that fun? Do you have to fundraise harder for that? Or, uh, yeah, is that, yeah, what's the impact on the organization to be able to do that? Because I, I got to figure it's better for the artist, right? They're happy. They're showing up and being valued. Well, he, he, ultimately, you know, we're still in the midst of it. But I can tell you that the... You know, you, we talked about funding early, earlier. When we first made the switch, right, some of our funders faded away. So, you know, they're like, we're into art, supporting art, not uh, social services. Um, you know, we like artists that have MFAs, not street cred. Some of our audience dropped. Some of our critics stopped coming to our shows. You know, some of that is classism and white supremacy. And so there was a little drop. But then over time, after after people were like, oh, starting to get it and saw that we this just wasn't like a fad that we actually had changed who we were and the way we work and what we're all about. Slowly, new money started to come in and fill that void. So there's a valley we had to get through. Um, which was, which was, which is, you know, I'm not going to lie. It was frustrating and annoying because you're like, you know, but, um, now, so we, then we started doing, we started kind of just really doing well and retiring a deficit. And then, um, since the pandemic has hit, um, you know, we had our most profitable year to date last year. Um, and we are in really great 
um, financial footing. Uh, our whole staff has gone W-2 with benefits. Um, we have a, the pay equity has made its way through everything. So we have a very unique way that we pay our staff and it's all transparent and based on, uh, on equity. And, you know, it's like, like anything, you know, it's not just you're adding one ingredient or taking one ingredient away, right? right. You're cooking a stew and the heat's on and water's evaporating and you're putting this in and you put that in and something, so you drop something in there like uh, uh, an hour ago, like let's say it's an apricot and it's getting hot, but then it's going to actually explode and turn into part of the stew eventually, right? So you could put a little salt in, but it was really that apricot that you dropped in there a, a, an hour ago that now is just, so, it, 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 so I can say that as a nonprofit, doing social justice work, our process has to be socially just. <laughs> and it's, be and, and, and although we live in this scarcity model, the universe and nature actually works in a model of abundance. And so if you break free from that, I feel like, um, and I, I'm still dealing with my trauma of all those years of not have of not being able to pay payroll on time, or the, the printer guy is looking for his money for all the posters and the programs, and you get in this mindset of scarcity, right? So, I still have trauma from that I deal with, but um, I believe that pay equity is profitable, and it makes the most sense. It's holistic, and it and it actually will feed your culture and actually change the. The, the nature of the, of your work, the way you work, and, um, and it will attract all kinds of um, energies and people that will become new assets and fuel for your work in your organization. And I know it's scary and it doesn't make any sense, but we have to break free of these, of these old ways of thinking once no, again, no, just I because love- someone else did it before, you know? Yeah, and I think breaking the scarcity model, that, that's actually why I asked about it, because I think there is a model of scarcity. And, we, you know, you've been doing this, the theater collaboration has been doing this social change work for a decade, right? It's not just because the pandemic shined a light on a problem. Yeah. It's been yeah. consistent. But you're also, when you become aware, what I, it's been fun to watch from the outside. I mean, grateful for social media because I can be a fan from New York, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and watching as new issues, or like you said about uh, your wife knowing what they need, you know, and staying ahead a little bit is you're in conversation with what change is happening, what needs to happen. But that takes, I like to use that it makes a stew because I'm thinking when you're, when you're going to pay equity, it goes all the way back to the food in the park, you know, like people building that sense of community and care for each other is already in there. And so it's like, well, now I can't have an intern. I don't pay. That's a barrier. Yeah. That's, yeah. You know. And, and, and for, for, you know, what I would say more traditional theater than clever action, the biggest barrier right now, is the audience that loves theater and pays for theater, especially Broadway commercial theater, but everywhere, they don't quite know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, They don't quite understand that, uh, you know, a 10 out of 12 and then an eight out of a 10 and then the whole week before called loading and tech. And when you don't have enough labor as it is, is um, an inappropriate way to run a uh, workforce. Cause in a 10 out of 12, as most of us know in the industry, if you're a designer or a tech or a director, you know, that's really the, it's really uh 10 out of 12 is really like a 16 out of 18, you know? You got, you're there, you know? So, um, and I know it's like the film world, right? I feel like these film directors at one point romanticize this concept of like these 12 hour days, you know? And a lot of that is, is, is misogyny. It's testosterone. You know, you work at Labyrinth Theater Company, you know about a bunch of ambitious 
big personalities who are coming out of a scarcity model and they see a little bit of sunlight so they're just gonna work they're gonna work it and 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 uh that's not sustainable and we 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 we're all complicit in it you know and so it's real hard to to stop but um so it's there's a leap of faith because you can't just half do it you know, and, and, and so it's, it's really to make that leap. It's got to actually start. It's what we're talking about is actually what Clever Action tries to do around the isms, right? Is you have to cultivate personal transformation inside of yourself as a leader, as a participant, as a collaborator. Um, and it's tricky because, you know, to be honest, like, you can you you might not go back you might not be the same person you were before and you might not go back to seeing and experiencing the art form that you love the same way you know um you know i'm, I'm friends and collaborators with with um karen olivo ko who won a tony for um west side story and who um um quit moulin rouge because of the um lack of pay equity and commercial theater and the broadway's complicity with scott rudin and i i identify with them quite a bit because they probably will never sit in a broadway theater and watch a show like they used to maybe 15 or 20 years ago you know and and so that's also there's this thing you want to hold on to the way things were and that's just nostalgia because time doesn't stop Right. You know, well, that's that's a great point. That's just nostalgia. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with nostalgia, but don't let nostalgia stop you from changing and growing. And 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 because because and, and it's just it's also just our mortality, right? It's just really like trying to not. I mean, look at you know, your beard is going gray in the middle on the sides. Mine is coming up my face. You know, you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, if I only dyed my beard, I wouldn't realize how old I was. You know, oh, my dad's they all dyed their hair. They all, you know, and 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 it, it's kind of like, you know, I'm not gonna dye my hair because I'm getting older and life is precious. And if it lasted forever, it wouldn't be so sweet, you know. It's yes, it's very funny. That comment, that comment resonates a little too true because I'm about to make a, a film of a solo show that I do, and I thought. Well, when I first performed it, the beard wasn't gray. <laughs> exactly. It was only a couple of years ago. But no. Yeah, exactly. No. You know, you, it's funny. The graying of one's beard becomes a marker of time. Um, and if you don't have a gray beard, you probably don't quite appreciate what I'm saying. Anything that reminds you of your mortality and how quickly it's going so that you can be in the present and try to be grateful for being alive, you know, um that and that that's really what my show that was my cure for cancer really was like um the only way you beat cancer or cure it is by not letting life go through your soul without appreciating it while it's happening you know um and i mean i met a lot of survivors of cancer they say i swear to you the sky is bluer than it used to be it wasn't this blue before and of course, it's just that they weren't really looking at it, you know? Well, yeah, now I feel silly because I'm going to ask you if, you know, just starting out, if you have, because we've covered everything I want to talk about and I want to be respectful of time. But uh, if you have any advice, but I have to say that's pretty good advice. <laughs> well, that's life advice. Here's my career advice. You have to create your own work. I thought about this on the uh, while I was driving back. I mean, that's when my career really started getting traction. That's when my wife's career started getting traction. It's like it'd be akin to a football player in the NFL, and 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 um, having the ability to write your own plays and get equity in your team for writing those plays. So all of a sudden. Um, you know, um, who's a famous football player right now? What's uh, Mahomes? Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes owns 7% of the Chiefs. 
Because why? He wrote all those plays. And he gets, you know, you can have royalties. But but the most thing, the thing is everybody has a voice that is that has value if contributed in the right way, in the right setting. You know, and the sooner you can unlock your voice, you know, and create things that you own, that you have intellectual property ownership over, that you get to dictate where it gets done and how it gets done and who's doing it. Um, whether you're Weird Al Yankovic or you're, you know, Brett C. Leonard, the sooner, or Sandra Delgado, the sooner you can actually say, this is my voice, or these are my dance moves, or this is my drawing, or this is my video, um, you will become an owner of not just a player. And if you can jumpstart it, I started when I was, I mean, I was producing and I had some some ownership there, but really, you know, Crime Scene and Chicago Anthology was the first show that I really, that really I authored and I owned, and that was in 2012. And so, you know, I, it took me till I was 38. And if I had done that, if I had the courage and the gumption to do that five or 10 years earlier, you know, I probably have more gray hairs on my beard, but but um, I'd have I'd own a little more piece of of my my life's work. And so. And, and just every, if everyone has the voice, you just got to figure out like how, what, how it needs to come out. I love, you know, it's funny. I love your thought on that because I think creating your own work is creating your own opportunity and, and empowering yourself. I also think we became artists. We are artists because we have something to say, something inside of us to get out. Yes. I, I like that you said it strengthens your voice, but also that idea of ownership of like, not only do you own the direction and empowered that you can do the work you want to do, but also you, you're, you're not a player on the team. There's a, there's a, there's an ownership. You have an, you have an asset. An asset. And that asset can go, you know, you can release it and let other people go play with it and make money from it. And what do you, that, that money is just energy. Artists got to get over this weird thing we have about money asking for money. I don't like to ask for money. It's energy. You don't like to ask for energy. You don't want energy. Really? What do you want? You want apathy? You want no energy. Oh, you want the lack of energy. You want to be invisible and you will then just go into sleep deprivation chamber, take a nap. And when you come out, let's get to work. Oh, that was great. God, it was great. I loved um, you know, I loved the end. I loved when he was talking about money being energy. You know, it's true, right? It's like it's energy. It's, we're asking when you're asking people to support something, what you're, you know, give the fuel so that it can run. And if you've got energy and they've got energy, I had a music director who used to say energy goes where energy flows. And I think, you know, that's true with the support. You know, and I thought his idea of changing perspective, I am aware of it. I am one of the artists who is uncomfortable and always having to reevaluate my, not my relationship to money, but my relationship to asking for it. Because really, I'm not asking for money. I don't want, I don't want the cash. I want the support. I want the energy. I want to, I want to be able to give, put that energy into a project. And I think it's a good way to think about it. I also really appreciated the idea of Creating your own work. You know, we always talk about that. I feel like a lot of like creating your own opportunity. Don't wait for somebody. You can do it. And it's clearly strengthening your voice. But I also love the idea of equity, of creating an asset. You become an owner of the work. And it's true because we all have a voice. We all have a vision. We're all participants in the work and creators of it. And so when we generate something, we generate script, when we generate a dance, a song, even the performance, you know, when we are creating this, we are creating body of something and we should recognize that we're owners of that. And I like that he put it in the terms of an asset and value and ownership for going back to money. It seems to be a theme for me. I asked him a couple of times about organizational development questions. And I think it's because I want to think about building that career at a point after a year and a half of not having one. I mean, I've been working a little bit on and off, but there's not an industry it hasn't felt like, and it's shifting. And I think as it shifts, 
it's really healthy for us to think about how does our work shift? How does our relationship to that energy of money shift, that ownership of our work so that we can build on it? And I'm really great. I was, you know, not recognizing or not not expecting how great that conversation is as I go to the Southeast Theater Conference next week, because one of the great things about that conference is it is a the best conference, I think, for combining education and professional opportunities together. And that's why it feels good as the farm theater to go there, because we're really combining those two things. And, and I, I think at this unique point in time, it's important to think about how are we building a career? What does that look like? What are the new models? What are the models we're going to create? And so I'm excited about it. It was a great conversation today with Anthony. The other thing is 25 years of Clever Action Chicago is like the center point for, you know, storefront theaters. Like, hey, let's get together and start a theater company. I mean, that's sort of the myth of that city. And Clever Action's really done it. And 25 years of this energy and this spirit and evolving and doing the thing he talked about, which is, you know, if you want to change systemically, you want to change, you have to change yourself. And as you change yourself, these things will change. And it's really watching that work change over time, still being true to a central mission, I think, but changing and evolving and growing and how they do it. And so great to share the conversation with all of you. I'm glad you're here. As always, glad you're listening and uh, hope, uh, hope we all get a chance to get out and create. And with that, we're out.